The famous biographer James Parton once referred to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania as hell with a lit off. Today, Pittsburgh is vibrant and colorful, and the Senator John Hines History Center is one of the many venues that celebrate the city's past and present. Everything you see here will have some sort of national impact. For decades, Pittsburgh's Hill District has been the setting for artistic talent, including playwright August Wilson. The Lower Hill District was one of the most culturally diverse places in our city. The Cary furnaces demonstrate early iron-making technology, and these rare structures also boast significant contributions to the world. This is the steel that went into this great industrial complex that framed the 20th century. Join us as we introduce two historic hotels and explore Pittsburgh's rich industrial, social, and cultural history. Just ahead on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Built in 1907 along the Monongahela River, Cary Furnaces 6 and 7 stand tall and they offer a rare look into early 19th century iron-making technology. Since the collapse of Pittsburgh's steel industry in the 1980s, the Cary Furnaces remain the only non-operative blast furnaces in the area. We'll take a tour of Cary Furnaces 6 and 7 a bit later in the hour. Also coming up on today's World Footprints radio show, Pittsburgh was a main destination of the African-American Great Migration and that southern exodus produced a cultural mecca in the Hill District. The community inspired playwrights, musicians, and Hollywood as it was a setting for the television series Hill Street Blues. Marimba Maloney's from the Hill Community Development Corporation tells us that remnants of the Hill District's cultural mosaic during its heyday from the 1920s to the 1940s can be seen today in landmarks that once housed synagogues and other places of worship, and in the architecture of some of the historic structures that accent the community. First, the Senator John Hines History Center traces its roots back to 1879, making it the oldest cultural institution in western Pennsylvania. The museum and research facility presents over 250 years of Pittsburgh and western Pennsylvania life, and its quest for storytelling is supported by the affiliation with the Smithsonian Institution. On a recent visit to Pittsburgh, we sat down with Brady Smith from the History Center, who shared how western Pennsylvania helped author some of America's most compelling historical stories. Thank you so much for welcoming World Footprints here today. Absolutely. We're happy to have you here. So, Brady, can you give us a little bit of history about the historical center here? You know, we moved into this uh, wonderful building in the Strip District neighborhood of Pittsburgh in, in 1996. The organization has been around actually since 1879. It was the Historical Society of Western Pennsylvania, but you know, now, of course, we're known as the Senator John Hines History Center. The building itself is a historical artifact. Uh, this was once the Lake Chautauqua Ice Factory. So the the pillars, the steel pillars that you see, and the, the brick walls really add a lot of ambiance to the visitor experience when they come in. It's interesting, too, because we have our old uh, trolley over in the corner here, which is very popular, especially for the wedding crowd. You know, people take their pictures in there quite a bit. There, you can see the train lines underneath of it. Well, there used to be a train that used to come right through where our museum shop is, right into the building and come out this way, out of the building. And they would load cubes of ice onto there and have it shipped out to businesses around the area before the time of regular refrigeration or anything like that. But 
interesting because then it really gives this building a, you know, an industrial feeling. And really, the building is a historic artifact in itself. In the History Center, we are the largest history museum in Western, or I'm sorry, in the state of Pennsylvania. We are an affiliate of the Smithsonian Institution. Um, we do a lot of programs with the Smithsonian, and also they share a lot of artifacts for some of our bigger exhibits. So that's that's a pretty pretty good overview of just the the organization. And you boast to being the uh, oldest cultural center in the country. That's right. Yeah, it's been here since 1879. It's the oldest. Uh, cultural organization in the city of Pittsburgh, so really probably the region as well. Now, you mentioned your affiliation with the Smithsonian Institution. What type of exhibits do you uh, bring to the center? Definitely. So uh, it's exciting, our, our partnership and our affiliation with the Smithsonian. We're very proud of that. In the past, we've had a number of different items uh, that we you know, have received from them for, for our 1968, the year that Rock America exhibit. And it's not all just regular history. It can be sports history, which we cover here at the History Center. We had a Gridiron Glory, the best of the Pro Football Hall of Fame exhibit here, um, where we received some items from the Smithsonian. So definitely a wonderful partnership, and it's great that the people in western Pennsylvania can come here and see those kind of artifacts. Currently, you have an exhibition called From Slavery to Freedom. Talk about some of those exhibits. From Slavery to Freedom is really a fantastic exhibit, and it chronicles African-American history in the region from 250 years ago until now. And it, it looks takes a really in-depth look at slavery and abolitionism in the area. Um, it talks about some of the, you know, the abolitionists who lived in Pittsburgh or were from Pittsburgh that really affected that time period, and also clarifies some myths about you know what people think uh, of slavery, North versus South. There were indentured servants, there were slaves, even in the North, that people don't realize that. So we really wanted to shed some light on that. And it's a very powerful exhibit, and that's a good example of you know, some of the long-term stuff. Uh, here at the History Center, you're also going to see Pittsburgh, a tradition of innovation, which um, talks about some of the great innovators in the history of Pittsburgh. And, and what we try to do at the History Center is present national history with a Western Pennsylvania connection. Some sort of national impact. You know, it, it's affected people across the country, but it has a Pittsburgh or Western Pennsylvania connection. And I think, you know, Mr. Rogers, we were talking about that. That's a great example. You know, Mr. Rogers affected many lives through his television show and was one of, you know, America's favorite, you know, television hosts. And he was from right here in Pittsburgh and filmed his show here. And that's something that, you know, we talk about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in depth at the History Center. Who are some of the more surprising innovators? Uh, I know the person who created the Ferris wheel. Yeah, so George Ferris actually was from Pittsburgh. 
and some of the the uh, I, I guess the ironwork used to build the first Ferris wheel came from Pittsburgh. Well, we know about H.J. Uh, Hines and the Hines Company, uh, George Westinghouse, Westinghouse Electric and Appliances. Well, you know, George Westinghouse was a native of, of Pittsburgh, so you'll learn a lot about him in the exhibit. There were many firsts in the region from the first Nickelodeon or movie theater happened here in Pittsburgh, the first commercial radio station, KDKA Radio. Again, that happened right here in Pittsburgh. So there's also contributions to the military, like the the Jeep was made in Butler, Pennsylvania. The invention of the Jeep really was uh, a huge catalyst in winning World War II. So that's just a couple examples. Visitors come here and they say, well, you know, where I'm in the History Center. Where can I learn about Pittsburgh history? It's like we usually go out the tradition of innovation because it talks about some of the great innovators, the people who have really made this region and this city what it is today. You know, it goes right on up to the present day. And uh, one thing you want to notice, too, uh, around the museum is that you'll see, uh, and in Tradition of Innovation, you'll see lifelike museum figures um, scattered about. And the reason why we have these lifelike figures, it's not like we're a wax museum or anything like that, but, um, you know, around Pittsburgh, you have the Carnegie Science Center, you have the Museum of Natural History, um, and the Warhol Museum, so it's art, science, dinosaurs, you know, natural life. We're really the people museum in Pittsburgh. We tell the story um, of the people of this region. Um, and so that's why those figures are around, and that's why you know, you'll see, and even in the labels and everything, we try and you know, tell that story as best we can. And for the uh, history buff or you know, a graduate student doing research or a book writer, you have an archive section here, too. That's right. So we have uh, our library and archives are on the sixth floor here at the History Center. We have students that come in here. We have researchers that can search through our archives. We have a, you know, a large staff that's here to accommodate them. We also have a very large bank of uh, photos that are used by reporters, students, uh, and, and people even, even looking for tips on their family history. We do a lot of genealogy work here. Uh, it's become very popular over the last couple of years. And even with the space that you occupy here, all of the exhibits, you've maintained a lead green standard that's for right. this building. That's right, and that's very important um, to the History Center that we are complying with all green building standards. We're very proud of the lead certification. I'd mentioned that you know we have a new building that is being rehabbed and renovated uh, next door that will be a storage facility and a conservation center. It's called the Museum Support Center, and that we are definitely shooting for lead certification uh, at the highest level for that. So just something that's a high priority for everybody here. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Tanya and I are exploring western Pennsylvania's rich heritage in the Senator John Hines History Center with Brady Smith. You can find a link to the History Center on our website at worldfootprints.com. Well, this building seems like a treasure trove of western Pennsylvania history that has uh, history that has a national impact. It is. Um, and, you know, everywhere you look, even when you walk into the building we have a, a very large area that's called the great hall we have uh, some popular items down there uh from the, the trolley um that people were used to seeing in the 1930s in pittsburgh the jeep is down there the one of the first jeeps ever created the prototype is in the great hall that actually was donated to the smithsonian in the 40s and now we have it here now which is exciting 
Um, you know, floor to floor, one of the places you'll see is the uh, Western Pennsylvania Sports Museum. It's a huge part of the uh, the History Center. We actually like to call it a museum within a museum. And that's another area where you'll walk around, and yeah, it is, we focus on Pittsburgh sports history and its athletes from Western Pennsylvania, but these athletes had a major impact. The Steelers have a national following. If you look in our football area, you'll see, you'll learn about the cradle of quarterbacks from Western PA, names like Johnny Unitas and Jim Kelly and Dan Marino, these all-pro quarterbacks who all came from Western Pennsylvania. We always say there must be something in the water. We don't know what it is, but, um, you know, I think everywhere you turn in the museum, uh, even if you're not from Pittsburgh, you can visit here and still uh, get a great sense for how important the people of this region have been. Well, I'm looking forward to exploring. And, yeah. uh, Brady, thank you very much for your hospitality and for joining uh, us here on World Footprints today. Uh, my pleasure, and, and enjoy uh, your, your trip here. To learn more about the Senator John Hines History Center and to see what exhibits are coming, visit HinesHistoryCenter.org. That's H-E-I-N-Z HistoryCenter.org. Come to learn, Pittsburgh has a rich history, a history that has contributions from many people from all over the world. Pittsburgh is also the center of what's called the Rivers of Steel National Heritage Area, a way to help interpret the history of this region in a much broader way. And significant to that history, obviously, is steel, but also the people, the immigrant people, And as we'll also learn later on the show, African-Americans who came to this region to help build not only the steel industry, but one of America's great cities. We also think about all the wonderful ethnic heritage and the culture that the immigrants from all over the world who came here brought to our country. If you've had a chance to see any of our beautiful churches... All, all related to the fact that these wonderful people from other countries came here and then developed churches, shared their folk art with all of us because they brought their culture with us. So we call it that sort of that melting pot, that really cool melting pot here. Pittsburgh's deindustrialization began in earnest in the 1940s after World War II. And unfortunately, in the case of Pittsburgh, part of America's victory meant helping to rebuild Germany and Japan. And as part of that, the technology that was fundamentally used in the steel industry was transferred to those countries. Uh, Japan and Germany wound up with more modern steel plants that put Pittsburgh at a competitive disadvantage. 
We built them steel mills. Okay, so we have steel mills from the late 1800s, early 1900s. We're building steel mills in the mid-40s, close to 50s. Who do you think is, has better steel mills? <laughs> modern, more modern technology that's going to make things easier and quicker. Right, so we've got that going on. Uh, number two, so we have that. We also have something else. So we talked about Pittsburgh and how it looked to everyone, how nice and probably way more green and lush than you thought when you came here. You were thinking smoky and gritty. It didn't just happen that way overnight. So around the 50s or so, we were also realizing we have to deal with our environment. When we have a city that at 9 o'clock in the morning it's so dark and our white shirts are getting dark and we have to change white shirts if you work in an office because it's so smoky gritty here. So we start to change and clean up our rivers and clean up our air. Is that free to do that? It costs a lot of money. And we're trying to get our steel mills and our industry up to speed on that, and they're from the late 1800s, early 1900s. In other countries, right now, they're dealing with the same pollution and stuff that Pittsburgh dealt with 30 years ago because they didn't have the same regulations that we started to put in place, the 50s or 60s, right, which now they're putting in place, right? When do you think um, people started to wear stuff that was provided by the steel mills, the industry? 50s and 60s. Okay, so let's think about this. You know, so prior to that, I mean, they might have had their own versions, but they, it wasn't being given to them. But and here's another reason why. So of course, that all would have cost money right off, just the just the items, just the clothing. But you know, when you're giving safety gear to your workers, what is that implying? That you, that that there's a liability that you're responsible for their safety. Because if you start supplying safety gear, you're you're acknowledging on some tacit way that it's your fault that they need to be in safety gear. So of course, that also costs what. As it should have, but, yeah, so it, that definitely was a big part of that. So, it, you know, there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle, you know. And so, you know, it's easy to say, well, yeah, they do it in other countries, cheaper, but you, part of the reason they do is we built them. <laughs> so there's a lot of this circle. But the other thing I like to add into this, so there's no easy answer, but I also like to add into this, life cycles. Things change also. That's also, And we've all lived long enough to know that what goes around, that trends change, time change, industry changes, and maybe it was just the time for, all the change, for it to happen too. I don't, I'm not being simplistic. People really went through a rough time, but I'm just being aware that when I've seen bigger, the bigger picture industry, things change like that, absolutely. So anyhow, that is a little bit about our steel heritage. For more information on the Rivers of Steel National Heritage Area, visit riversofsteel.com. Later in the show, we'll learn more about one of those significant landmarks in the Heritage Area, Carry Blast Furnaces number 6 and 7, as we talk to Ron Baroff. Hi, my name is Bob Page. I'm the Director of Sales and Marketing here at the Omni William Penn. And the Omni William Penn is actually a very historic property here in Pittsburgh, and we're getting ready to celebrate our 100-year anniversary the hotel has a very, very rich history. Some of the highlights of that history are that Lawrence Welk actually got his start here. Uh, he played for the very first time on New Year's Eve back in 1938 uh, in our Terrace Room restaurant. And his actual bubble machine was created here by the chief engineer uh, of the hotel. So uh, Lawrence Welk, as everybody knows, was the king of champagne music. Some of the other highlights of the hotel are that we have had every seated 
president since Theodore Roosevelt has also stayed here with us at the William Penn. We are, the hotel was built in two phases and uh, again, the original structure was built in 1916 and the doors opened on March 9th. So on March 9th of 2016, we will celebrate our 100 year anniversary, which we're very excited about. A couple of neat features of the hotel as well as we have one of the very few remaining two-tier grand ballrooms uh, that still exist in the country. It's a beautiful, elegant floor-to-ceiling window-type ballroom that sits atop the hotel on the 17th floor and uh, has a, a beautiful gold balcony around the ballroom itself. And then there's actually another room there called the Urban Room, which is a, on the Register of National Historic Landmarks, and it's called the, uh, the Urban Room, and it was named after Joseph Urban, who was a set and lighting designer for Florence Ziegfeld during the Ziegfeld Follies. He created three of these rooms, one in New York, one in Chicago, and one here in Pittsburgh in the William Penn, and this is the only one that still remains. It's a very Art Deco type of a looking room. And another neat room here is a speakeasy. We uh, had a speakeasy that was boarded up for about 40 to 50 years, and during the last round of renovations that we did, we were able to renovate that speakeasy and reopen it, and it is sort of tucked under the stairwell of the main entrance of the hotel. Pittsburgh's Hill District is a collection of neighborhoods that are considered by many to be the cultural center of African-American life in the city. Harlem Renaissance poet Claude McKay once called the Hill District the crossroads of the world. The Hill, as it's called, was a setting for nine of the plays in August Wilson's 10-play Pittsburgh Cycle and the inspiration for the popular television series Hill Street Blues. The Hill earned national recognition on the jazz circuit because it was home to legendary jazz giants Lena Horne, Billy Eckstein, and Earl Fatha Hines. Marimba Maloney's from the Hill Community Development Corporation tells us that if we listen closely, we can almost hear the sounds from the Hill's heyday. Marimba, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, I mentioned in the outset that poet Claude McKay once referred to the Hill as the crossroads of the world. What do you think he meant by that? Well, one of the Hill District's very famous radio broadcasters, Mary D., would oftentimes say the Hill District is the crossroads of the world. And so, as, as well as Claude McKay, I believe he must have at some point come along because we acknowledge that as well. And it was because the Hill District was such an exciting place to be. Many people would say it, is, it was the place to stop between New York and Chicago, particularly as it relates to related to the jazz scene and, you know, the Negro Leagues and so forth. But the history of the Hill District really just spans from, obviously, the beginning of Pittsburgh as a city. It's one of Pittsburgh's oldest communities, and it's a very large neighborhood. It's about 1.8 square miles now. Like most cities and city neighborhoods, it kind of grew over time or became smaller over time. But in this case, what we call the Lower Hill District was one of the most culturally diverse places in our city. And it was a place kind of like a melting pot, so to speak, where you had Armenians, Jews, and African-Americans, and uh, Italians really living together right there at the foot of our neighborhood, which is connected to the downtown area. And then, you know, going all the way up to the Upper Hill District, um, now, over a period of decades, you know, in the 20s, I believe, in particular, it became a predominantly African-American community where you really had the celebration of jazz culture and 
the uh, rich legacy of that is, is, is in Pittsburgh and the Hill District is everything from Duke Ellington being named the king of jazz here in the Hill District to Louis Armstrong playing, you know, Lena Horne has roots in the Hill District and Stanley Turrentine. And so it just was a community that was bustling with Negro League teams and businesses up and down the corridors. I'm not sure if you've seen Wiley Avenue days. So it, it really, I mean, our very strong businesses, local businesses, African-American-owned businesses, a very strong social fabric, very strong faith institutions. Mm-hmm. And so it just had an energy that was very uncommon. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. We're talking to Marimba Malones from the Hill Community Development Corporation, who is giving us a glimpse into Pittsburgh's Hill District's past and its promising future. One of the questions that I was asked on a recent visit, what was my impression of Pittsburgh before I arrived in the city? And, you know, our initial impression was a city with perhaps very high steel mills, smokestacks, kind of gray, polluted. But Pittsburgh is an incredibly colorful city, and I think a lot of people would be very, very surprised to know that there's so many rich traditions and a treasure trove of of history. Now, with the Hill District Development Corporation, your organization, certainly you're focused on development growth in the Hill District, but is that growth sustainable? Is it aligned with Pittsburgh's mission and and commitment to create sustainable projects? And, and are you preserving history with that growth? Right. That's a great question. So the Hill CDC has been around since 1987. And like a lot of CDC, CDC stands for Community Development Corporation. And you have CDCs all throughout the country. It went through a life cycle where, you know, in the 80s, the CDC movement came about in part because of a, of a very clear need for more accessible and affordable housing and um, the redevelopment of urban core neighborhoods, many of uh, many of those neighborhoods that, you know, are here in the hearts of our cities across America really um, were diminished between the late 50s and 60s and 70s as a result of urban renewal policies. And so the Hill District is one of the neighborhoods, one of the first, in fact, neighborhoods to experience um, the devastating impacts of urban renewal. Mm-hmm. And so we had in the Lower Hill District about 8,000 residents, businesses, and institutions displaced from the foot of our neighborhood. And uh, an arena was built which really cut off the core avenues Mm-hmm. between the middle part of the neighborhood to downtown. And you had a considerable amount of economic demise as a result of that. So this CDC, the Hill CDC, was focused on helping to bring back the fabric of the neighborhood in the form of housing and commercial development. And so the first wave was really a clear focus on on housing with with some retail It's very difficult to do retail without understanding the housing development that's happening or if you have a high level of folks who have left a neighborhood or if, you know, if if there's not a strategic kind of retail strategy and housing plan that work together. So we've been focused on how to restore the residential, commercial, and cultural fabric of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it's really exciting. I mean, the Hill District is an exciting community. 
it's energetic, there's considerable amount of development happening, particularly the housing is now coming back. We were very fortunate to have um, three Hope Six projects in the Hill District community, which was a, a program under the Clinton administration okay. to take old-style public housing and do mixed-income neighborhoods. And so we were able to transform what were high levels of concentrated poverty into mixed-income neighborhoods. Now, a challenge with that is that oftentimes some residents may be displaced as a result, but we have been trying to work through that in our community by thinking about, you know, what are the appropriate levels of affordable versus market versus home ownership. And so all of that is core CDC work, and that's what the Hill CDC has been focused on. And also now we're really focused on the redevelopment of our retail corridor. So we recently were very fortunate to have a grocery store. First in 30 years, we lived in what's called a food desert. There's a national movement to bring supermarkets back to urban neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Hill District is very fortunate to have a supermarket now open. It just opened last week. And we are now working on the cultural revitalization through redeveloping or rehabbing structures such as August Wilson's Childhood Home, the New Granada Theater, which is where Duke Ellington was named the King of Jazz, uh, the Crawford Grill, which is where, you know, lots of folks would come up and play. After they played downtown, they come up and play at the Crawford Grill. Um, and so we do have a number of cultural structures that remain, but a lot of them have been demolished, unfortunately. A lot of our housing stock has been demolished. Thinking about all of how we bring all of this together is, again, the core work of the CDC, and that's what we do every day. But we've been fortunate. You know, we've been fortunate to see a high level of investment relative to housing in our neighborhood over these past, over the past decades, for sure. The Hill District began as Farm Number 3, which is owned by a grandson of William Penn and sold two centuries ago to a Revolutionary War veteran, General Adamson Tannehill, for $20 an acre. In the late 1840s, Thomas Mellon bought a tract of farmland closest to the city, which he subdivided into smaller city-sized plots, selling them at a tidy profit. This began the Hill's residential development. We have much more to share about Pittsburgh's Hill District just ahead on World Footprints Radio. Listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we'll take a Rivers of Steel National Heritage Tour of Cherry Furnaces 6 and 7, the only non operative blast furnaces in the Pittsburgh district to remain standing. But in a moment, we'll continue our conversation with Marimba Malonis from Pittsburgh's Hill District to learn how history is being preserved through the exciting renaissance the community is experiencing. Well, speaking of, you know, the new retail outlets that are entering in the Hill District, I have to to say I was so impressed with the explosion of the culinary and art scenes in Pittsburgh. And I'm wondering, is some of that exciting growth finding its way to the Hill District? It is. Actually, we are getting lots of inquiries from artists. We have a very strong culinary uh, community here in the Hill District. We have been doing some small business work with community partners, and one of the 
ideas that folks come come with often is either a restaurant or catering. And so we do see a lot of that. We have a number of gardens here in the neighborhood, and that's a very interesting twist, right? You know, fresh food and locally sourced foods. And we're trying to find ways to connect those with the schools here in the Hill District as well. Okay. So there's an interesting twist on both the arts and culinary uh, I don't know if it's a Pittsburgh thing, but if it is a Pittsburgh thing, it's certainly in the Hill, too. <laughs> well, I was happy. I'll, I'll you know, arts and uh, food and wine. So we'll bring anyone, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, where can visitors go to get a real sense of the culture and the energy in the Hill, past and present, and answer that from a local's perspective, because you grew up in Pittsburgh. Where do you like to go? You know, the, the place that I, the place that we're trying to build in the Hill District is where I want people to come, if that makes sense. It's, mm-hmm. We are actively engaged in developing that place that captures all of that history. We have places that you know, are just kind of cultural institutions. For example, the Carnegie Museum of Art had on exhibit Teeny Harris's over 60,000 photographs of the Hill District for quite some time. I believe now it's a traveling exhibit. So there you could literally see the story of the Hill District. He was a photographer who, you know, captured more of the history of this community than anyone. So you have that. And then you have the Heinz History Center, which captures Pittsburgh's history, right? And then you can come to the Hill District, right? And just, just come up. You can come to the Hill Community Development Corporation if you really want to get into the neighborhood, which is what we encourage. Because, unfortunately, like many neighborhoods, that, you know, struggle with, who, who who went through kind of the cycle of urban renewal, struggle with perception issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when folks get into the neighborhood, they realize, wow, this is such a treasure. Freedom Corner is the place where when the development was happening on the Lower Hill District, when residents were displaced, there was a certain amount of commitment made. That investment would happen throughout the neighborhood. But when residents realized that wasn't going to happen, they erected a billboard that said, no redevelopment beyond this point. We need affordable housing. Hmm. And so now there's a monument there called Freedom Corner that really kind of acknowledges and celebrates that story, but also literally has the inscription of, you know, many of the folks who have worked over decades in this city. So, you know, you can go there, you can see, you can come up to the New Granada Theater, and we do tours. We're still in the process of restoration and trying to launch a capital campaign. So these places are here. This is a living, breathing neighborhood. So the best thing to do is to actually come to the neighborhood. So that's where I like to be. I like to be here doing the work of rebuilding this neighborhood, which I think is a regional treasure. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we are exploring the history of the streets of Pittsburgh's Hill District with Marimba Malonis. So you guys do offer the Hill District Development Corporation offers walking tours? We do driven tours and walking tours, and we sometimes do those with community partners. Our focus is, again, the community development. So we connect that to the to the to the history and to where we are, like what's been our trajectory of development in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So so we do that often. And then for folks who want more historical tours, we have you know community partners with whom we work who do strictly cultural tours or historic tours. Okay. So again, as a as a Pittsburgh native, for any locals coming into the Hill District. Are there is there something an attraction or a piece of history that would surprise even a local that surprised you when you began working for the Hill District Development Corp? 
That's a great question. There are things like the Arsena Overlook that is a breathtaking view of the north side of the city. In the Upper Hill District, there uh, is Finland Street that just will take your breath away. And that looks at, you know, you can see like the whole east end and, uh, of the city. Pittsburgh is a very high community. It's kind of elevated. You get these amazing topical, topographical uh, views. I would say the Carnegie Library, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful space. I would say visit some of the landmarks that I named, New Granada Square, August Wilson Center. I would say to go visit Ujima Collective Boutique, which is a collective of women artisans uh, and business owners who have a cooperative business model. You know, that, that I think is something from just a retail standpoint that, you know, you can get handmade goods and you can get... You know, merchandise that might not be easily accessible in other neighborhoods. Those are a few things that that come to mind. It's interesting that Pittsburgh has developed such a rich history around African-American people, even though it wasn't one of the main cities of the Great Migration. Well, in some ways it was because of the steel industry. You know, they came up from the South. African-Americans came up from the South because of job opportunities within the industry, I didn't realize how much of a hub that was or an attraction that was for African-Americans. That playwright August Wilson was much loved in the area, and I know that there is a museum dedicated to him in the Hill. Tell us a little bit about the museum, its collection, exhibits, structure, and I understand that in addition to the museum or center, there's also his home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, well, of course, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and playwright August Wilson was from the Hill District, grew up on Bedford Avenue, and we do here in Pittsburgh have um, his, his childhood home is still here. The family is in possession of it, and they are actually launching a capital campaign to restore his childhood home, and they're exploring things like uh artist colony, and other ideas for uh, the reuse of that structure. And then downtown in what we call the Cultural District of Pittsburgh is the August Wilson Center, which is a beautiful structure and was opened several years ago and named after him. They have everything from, you know, small exhibits and artistic presentations to installation, a permanent installation that talks about August Wilson and his work and Pittsburgh. And so I would certainly encourage folks who are interested in learning about the Hill and learning about African-American culture in Pittsburgh to visit the August Wilson Center. It's actually called the August Wilson Center for African-American culture. The August Wilson Center needs your support right now. Just like most cultural centers, it is tough to maintain them. So I would love to see both folks who are from Pittsburgh and out-of-towners come to the August Wilson Center and support it. Do you know the website? Their website is augustwilsoncenter.org. Awesome. Well, I And you can come to our website, of course. Of course, which is? <laughs> www.hilldistrict.org. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Marimba, for, for sharing. To follow the progress of the Hill District and to support the community's development work, visit hilldistrict.org.
My name is David Davis. I'm the director of sales at the Portland Regency Hotel and Spa in Portland, Maine. David, we are meeting at the Historic Hotel's uh, cocktail hour right now. What makes your property, the Portland Regency Hotel and Spa, a historic property? Well, the Portland Regency Hotel and Spa was built, uh, the actual building was erected in 1895 as an armory for the Maine National Guard and then developed into a hotel in 1987 for the purpose of a hotel and has been a hotel. Uh, we're going on 29, 28 years now. Now, who are some of the famous people associated with the property? I mean, you can't have a historic property without a little bit of scandal and a lot of uh, celebrity. <laughs> Well, we've had a lot of people stay with us since it's been a hotel. And obviously, prior to being a hotel, being a armory for the Maine National Guard, there were a lot of notable uh, soldiers that stayed with us uh, that lived in the building for quite a, quite a, a number of time. We also um, have hosted in the hotel's history a number of influential people, uh, politicians, celebrities, and that kind of thing. As somebody who stands out to you? Uh, I think one of the last people that I remember uh, personally speaking with in the hotel was Billy Joel. We've also hosted uh, Michael Steele. Those are some more of the notable people in recent, recent time. So what do you love most about your property? Well, I like the unique factor. It's not a hotel that you would go into that is cookie cutter in nature. Uh, it's a unique property, so you know that there's a story behind it. It wasn't just erected for the purpose of having people stay for a night and then forgetting about you, it's a memorable experience. Uh, and that's really what we aim for. Is we, we like to provide a high level of service, but we also like to talk about the building and the, the history that the building has held in the past and will continue on with uh, in the future. Thank you. of Steel Heritage Corporation conserves, interprets, and develops historical, cultural, and recreational resources throughout western Pennsylvania, including the eight counties that comprise the Rivers of Steel National Heritage Area. The dynamic and powerful story of the region's evolution from colonial settlement to big steel and the modern era is told through its communities, architecture, and industrial sites. Core landmarks like the Cary Blast Furnaces numbers 6 and 7 illustrate the magnitude of the historical narrative. We met Ron Baroff, the Director of Museums and Archives from the Heritage Corporation at the Cary Furnaces and we explored a rare example of pre-World War II iron making technology and learned about the links between our colonial and industrial heritage to present day life. What exactly is the Rivers of Steel National Heritage Area? Oh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> We're an umbrella group that, that um, covers eight counties and, and it's all to preserve, interpret, and promote the industrial legacy of this region and the people that populated it. Mm -hmm. So we work to directly preserve, in, such as with the Cary Furnace site, but also to assist other preservation groups and outreach groups and community groups in their communities. So we help with grant funding, we help with projects, technical assistance, that sort of thing. And how long has your organization been active? We started in 1988, but became the Rivers of Steel National Heritage Area in 1996. So you started shortly after the, the steel industry pretty much folded here. Right. Actually, we started 
because the steel industry was folding. And it started very much from a grassroots effort of identifying that Homestead in particular was somewhere that can't go away, that this Homestead works, that this this site that employed 15,000 people but was famous nationally and internationally can't just be bulldozed, Mm -hmm. that we needed to try to save some of this to not just maintain our own sense of self Mm -hmm. and our own sense of place, but to then use this history to help move the region forward, to use this history to drive tourism. Mm -hmm. This is a story that people are going to want to know about, they're going to want to see, and they're going to want to experience. And so I know the heritage area was created certainly to preserve, as you mentioned, your regional history. Why is this story important to the nation and, and others traveling to this country? This region, and it's not hyperbole to say this region built the world. And the iron and steel that came out of here allowed this country to grow horizontally with the railroads and vertically with the buildings. But beyond that, this is the steel that went into this great industrial complex that framed the 20th century. And it's, so it's not just a regional picture. It's not even just a national picture. It's an international view. Mm-hmm. The steel that came out of this plant and out of this region won World War II. So it changes the face of, of the world. Tell me a little bit about the mill that we're standing on now. We are currently standing at the Cary Furnace site, or what's left of the Cary Furnace site. It was originally seven blast furnaces. There's now two, number six and seven. They were the last two built. They opened in 1907 and ran until 1978. They're National Historic Landmarks, not because, well, they're the last two, but because they do a couple of things. One, they are prime examples of the technological advancements and changes that took place in the industry in the early 20th century. And two, they're the only extant pre-World War II vintage blast furnaces left, not just here, but anywhere. Mm. So the technology that was put in place here, you can't find anywhere else. So it, it changes the industry and it changes the world. They also are, on that kind of bigger view, if you technology aside, they stand as a monument to all the working men and women, mm-hmm. not just of this region, but of this country, that made the 20th century and now the 21st century what it is built that America that we all know, and this really is a symbol of that. Is this mill the only mill that is part of your heritage uh, area tour? Of this scope, yes. We have a few other sites that we own or manage. We have the Bose Building, which is also a National Historic Landmark, and its association with with the Homestead Strike, the Pump House also, Mm -hmm. which was associated with the Homestead Strike, and then we have a site down in Greene County, the W.A. Young & Sons machine shop and foundry, which is this amazing snapshot of a smaller support industry mm-hmm. that existed all over this region. The machine shop opened in 1900, it closed in 1966. It literally looks like they all went out to lunch and never came back. Mm. But it's shops like that that were all over this region and served to support this industry but also the river, mining, and other industries that we're all support. It's an amazing, amazing, pristine site. 
This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're walking through a rare example of pre-World War II iron-making technology at the Cary Furnaces in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Speaking of Christine, have there been any initiatives to clean up uh, some of the environmental impacts that the steel mills have had? And, for example, with this mill, what have you guys done and what are you doing? Fortunately for us, the iron-making process is a relatively clean process. This is different than the steel mills or other even smelting plants. So very little needs to be done in the way of environmental cleanup. This is not a, a dirty brownfield site. That, you know, it, it, it really isn't bad. There, there's some soil contamination, but uh, capping covers that. It really isn't a big issue. We were fortunate. Mm-hmm. We were fortunate. But there, you know, you probably saw on your way in that there's a lot of remediation work being done and mostly what's happening there isn't so much because of environmentals but more so to bring the site above floodplain and to do that and then ready it for developer. Ron, I'm I'm just curious, did you work in this mill or one of the mills? I didn't, but I grew up here. Okay. So, you know, one of the questions I asked earlier is about OSHA standards. This very, very dangerous work. Um, These men worked in 2,000 to 3,000 degree Fahrenheit furnaces. Did you witness or or learn about any of the safety initiatives that took place to to help protect these these men against the dangerous work they were doing? Yes. I mean, you know, we, we, we spent a lot of time doing it oral history interviews with folks who worked in these places, uh, touring some of the mills. We talk about safety on our tours, but safety is an evolving thing. When this site opened in 1907, there was very little regard for the safety of the workers. There was tacit movement. Uh, There were safety programs put in place into the 20s and the 30s, but it really isn't until 1960s and 1970s where it's pushed to the point where it is now, you know, where there's hard hats, wearing personal safety devices, monitors for gas, other gas equipment, uh, tying off. So even in the 40s when women started working in the mills because of, you know, the war, World War II, safety procedures were not that stringent even for them? Not by modern standards, no. Safety, as I said, is evolving. So in the 1940s, they would wear heat suits Mm. while dealing with molten iron. Um, but that's only a handful of people. And those heat suits were made out of asbestos, which now, as we know, it, no, is, no. is verboten. <laughs> right. you know, so now it's, it's aluminized Kevlar. But most of the workers, they would wear metatarsals. Mm-hmm. They would wear safety glasses. But they were not wearing flame-resistant clothing. They weren't wearing hard hats for the most part. It wasn't part of their everyday wear. You don't really start to see hard hats in these plants until the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And so as there was more awareness of what needed to be done and as the unions gained traction, because they have a lot to do with this, safety becomes more paramount. If you go inside this building, you'll see that there's a big mural on the wall that was done when the mill was here, and it's all about safety. Why why Pittsburgh? Why Pittsburgh as the hub for the steel industry, the pretty much the world steel industry back in the day? Right. The, the, the question is why here? For a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, we sit on the Pittsburgh seam, which is one of the richest coal seams in the world. That's the fuel. Two, we have the rivers for transportation. 
three, there was already a climate of ingenuity and invention in this region. So it starts early on with boat building and moves into the steam industry. Robert Fulton was based out of here. Mm -hmm. And so that, that mindset's already here. And so is the capital. So you combine all of those things, and then you open up you know, the floodgates of immigration. You've got everything you need right here. And so that's that that combination of all those factors allows Pittsburgh to really grow. Um, and it's also centrally located between New York and, and Chicago. And ma every major rail line was running through here, so there's a link. Mm -hmm. Ron, thank you so much for sharing some of our American and really world history with World Footprints. My pleasure. To walk in the footsteps of America's industrial history, schedule your tour of the Cary Furnaces at riversofsteel.com. As you heard throughout the show, dear, I was very surprised about what I found in Pittsburgh. I did not expect to see beautiful skylines, a glistening city, a clean city, beautiful waterfront. I went with the impression that Pittsburgh as a steel city was had gray clouded skies, uh, gray smoke skies, mm -hmm. and I was very, very impressed. Well, Pittsburgh has undergone one of the great urban transformations in American history. If you go back to the 40s and 50s with the first renaissance in Pittsburgh that led to uh, a major redevelopment of downtown, and it's continued through several phases of this Pittsburgh renaissance, which has seen the city go from making steel to becoming a science and technology center, Pittsburgh has really been an innovator for urban tourism, for how to build 
a great modern mid-sized city in many respects. Yeah, and it's a good model for reinvention for other cities like Detroit, who really needs to reinvent itself you know, from and create some diverse mm-hmm. industry outside of the automobile industry. Pittsburgh has done that with, with tourism, I think. And, and certainly... In addition to tourism, Pittsburgh's always benefited from having wealthy families, whether it's been the Carnegie family or the Mellon family of uh, the Mellon Bank. And these folks really invested a lot in institutions that today make Pittsburgh strong and viable, whether it's the universities or the museums. The symphony has always been well-respected in Pittsburgh. And let's not even talk about the sports teams, which have always made Pittsburgh pretty much of a of a love-hate city in the I, eyes of I, many people. I was going to say that talking about Pittsburgh, hearing you talk about Pittsburgh, it sounds like you are very impressed and enamored with the city. I always have been. But then you threatened to divorce me if I bought you a terrible town. Absolutely, I will. <laughs> I am not a Steelers fan. I am not a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. I am not a fan of the Pittsburgh Penguins because... Those are great rivals or have hurt but you're my a fan team. Of the city. You're a fan of it the is, city. It is a city that is underrated in, in many respects because it's not New York or Chicago or San Francisco, mm-hmm. but in many respects it's got unique physical geography. It's got more bridges than any city in the United States, and all of these hills really make a very unique setting mm-hmm. as uh, you come through the Fort Pitt tunnels and you see the Golden Triangle and uh, uh, the skyscrapers that are there. It really is an an amazing place to visit. And then just driving through the city itself, you know, through downtown, there was an area that I fell in love with. I called it the Emerald City. It was tons of buildings that had mirrored. Mm-hmm. Uh, You're thinking a PPG place. Is that what it is? Yeah. I, I, when we drove through, I thought, oh, my gosh, it felt like the Emerald mm-hmm. City and the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. and I was really fascinated, and it mm-hmm. kind of took me back to a childhood dream. Yeah, and, and that particular building is one designed by Philip Johnson, part of that postmodernism architecture, the mm-hmm. AT&T Chippendale building in New York. And so they were able to bring that to Pittsburgh, and that's one of the things about Pittsburgh. It's got an eclectic mix of architecture. Right. At the University of Pittsburgh is the Cathedral of Learning, which is the, one of the tallest buildings devoted to academic uses anywhere on the planet. And so there are these unique things about Pittsburgh that would surprise a lot of people. What I think also impressed me was the fact that they are building these beautiful modern stu- uh, structures without compromising some of the historical uh, structures. You know, we, we featured uh, a historic hotel on the show uh, from Pittsburgh, and which has a very rich history. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a couple of historic hotels in, in Pittsburgh, and so they are honoring their past and building on their future. Did, when you were there, um, we didn't try Pramati. No, Pramonte Brothers. Brothers, no, no, yeah. we didn't try it, but they've got those humongous sandwiches that uh, a family could eat. Coleslaw. <laughs> Uh, French fries on the sandwich, and if you ask for them to put the French fries on the side, you're kicked out of the restaurant. I mean, that's just a faux pas. <laughs> well, it sounds like we have to make a road trip to visit Pittsburgh real soon. Just for the food. Yeah. You know, traveling to unique places really breathes life into us, and we really enjoy sharing our adventures with you. And We're Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. 
The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.